We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. The show today is presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code, KevinDC, and they will double your first deposit all the way up to $1,000. So they're giving you free money to gamble with. We've got the two championship games on Sunday. Plenty of ways to bet both of these games at MyBookie. Lots of prop bets. Lots of ways to bet on Super Bowl matchups. Right now, the favorite is Kansas City and the Rams. They're minus 110. Kansas City, San Francisco's minus 200. I'm sorry, plus 200. Um, and then the long shot Super Bowl matchup is Cincinnati, San Francisco, the two road underdogs. Uh, but you would get uh, plus 710 back on that particular uh, wager. Uh, go to my bookie. If you've already got a place where you're betting, just take their free money. They're going to give you, you know, double your first money to bet with. It's crazy not to take it. And then you can also play uh, where your point spreads are best, where it's to your greatest advantage. Mybookie.com, mybookie.ag. Use my promo code Kevin DC, and they will take good care of you. Tommy is with me today. Uh, we will talk about these championship games. I do have my smell test. Uh, on these games coming up. And I just want to remind anybody that missed the show yesterday that uh, it was one of my favorite interviews, Tommy, that I've done in a long time. It was with a guy by the name of Kevin Ambrose. Kevin is a frequent contributor to the Washington Post as a writer and to the Capitol Weather Gang. He's an author. He's written books on D.C. snowstorms. Um, and he's written a book on the Knickerbocker Theater Disaster, and that's why I had him on, because today marks the 100-year anniversary of Washington, D.C.'s deadliest event, and that was the collapse of the Knickerbocker Theater in Adams Morgan, January 28, 1922. 98 died, 133 were seriously injured. Um, the roof collapsed under the weight of 28 inches of snow, which still to this day is DC's greatest snowstorm, um, the biggest snowstorm DC's ever had. And it was just a fascinating story. So many things that I had never heard um, before. I've heard of the Knickerbocker Theater disaster, but I always 
had heard about the Knickerbocker snowstorm. I knew why it was called the Knickerbocker snowstorm, but I didn't know the details of um, the tragedy. And uh, Kevin was a great guest. So if you missed that show yesterday, go back um, and listen to it because he was great. Uh, You're familiar with that, aren't you? The Knickerbocker theater disaster or not? I was va- I was slightly familiar with it. I read a lot, some about it yesterday, uh, and educated myself further. Uh, particularly read the story about the. Wa- I think it was. I forget what newspaper he worked for. A Washington newspaper uh, drama critic was in there. There was a movie showing. It was a silent movie. It was a silent movie. And yeah, and the drama critic had been there. I guess watching the movie. I don't know if he was reviewing it. But then he uh, basically, you know, went to a payphone and, you know, he survived and went to a payphone and dictated what he saw. Uh, so you got a firsthand account uh, of the uh, horrors that, that were going on in, in the theater. It was pretty compelling stuff. Yeah, I mean, you basically had, um, you know, uh, 202 survivors because there were 300 there, 98 killed, 133 of those survivors were um, were injured and many seriously. You know, there was a, a Kevin and I talked a little bit uh, after the interview, and um, he actually mentioned something to me that he didn't mention during the interview uh, itself, and that was that the conductor of the orchestra, the band leader, I guess, or the orchestra leader, these were silent films. And so something I didn't know until yesterday is when you would go to a silent film, there was typically an orchestra that would play the music when you were at a silent movie back in the 1920s. This was the heyday of Charlie Chaplin and silent movies. And the band leader or the orchestra leader was one of the most famous orchestra leaders in the country. And one of the reasons that this was a big deal on that particular night and 300 people braved the weather, because I asked him, how the hell was this theater open, you know, in the the midst of a raging two and a half foot blizzard? And um, one of the reasons 300 people made it there by foot was they wanted to see this uh, band leader, this famous orchestra leader um, that was going to be leading um, the music that night. And they were scrambling to get orchestra members there um, and backup orchestra members there. But, um, but yeah, there was, uh, you know, I, George Patton, Tommy, was part of the rescue and recovery. Long before he became General George Patton, he was... That's pretty cool. I didn't he, know that. Yeah, he was Army Major George Patton. Um, General Pershing from World War I was part of the rescue um, effort uh, as well. So um, there's there's plenty well, of pictures that that were out yesterday of the weather that day and of the Knickerbocker Theater both both pre and post disaster. And seeing those pictures, it's it's I mean it's it's incredible just to, to think about you know that particular day and the chaos. 1922, 28 inches of blizzard snow. And w- Tommy, what's interesting? A hundred years later. We are having and we're going to have a major blizzard here on the East Coast. Now, we're going to miss out on the bulk of it here in D.C. We're going to get one to three, two to four, something like that this afternoon and tonight. But Ocean City right now, you know, Fenwick, Bethany, Rehoboth, all the way, the beaches all the way up to Boston, 
they're under a blizzard warning right now for feet of snow and like 70 mile per hour winds. So a uh, hundred years ago to the day, we've got another major blizzard on the East Coast. Wow. Uh, how, many, how many feet of snow are we talking there? Oh, well, Coming. well, we're not, we're missing out on the bulk of it here in the metro area. I know, area. But, on, but on the coast there, how much do they, you think so they're going to get? So right now, Ocean City and, and the beaches, our beaches, the Maryland and Delaware beaches, are all under a blizzard warning, and they're going to get anywhere from 8 to 16 inches of snow. So somewhere around a foot, okay. but with dropping temperatures and literally hurricane force gusts, you know, like 40-mile-per-hour winds with 80-mile-per-hour gusts. Boston is going to get two to three feet. You know, it, it's, it's, wow. a, it's, it's a major news story right now, you know, the, this storm. And it just is developing a little bit too far north and east for us to uh, feel that kind of um, impact from it, unfortunately, because I would have loved it, as you know. Um, but the forecast actually is changing a little bit. They were last night. They were saying, you know, an inch to two inches. Now I think the metro area will see anywhere from one to four, um, and then brutally cold tomorrow and windy here. So we're it's going to be there. It, it's going to be felt here, but not you know it's it won't be a crippling storm. And we've had enough of, of you know of, of these events over the last month. People are used to it now. You've missed out on the whole thing. You, you, know, you got out of town just in time. I know. <clears throat> I know. This is this is the, the the year that we really capitalized on it. Uh, you mentioned you know the silent film and the orchestra. Yeah. Up in Frederick, they have a great theater called the Weinberg Center for the Arts. It's an old theater that's been restored, and they have concerts and and all kinds of events there, and they'll show silent movies there. And they have an old-time organ that comes out of the ground by the stage. Wow. And they have a guy who will play the organ during a silent movie for the whole, like, 90 minutes, nonstop. You know, he the organ as, as, like, the backdrop to the movie. And it's very cool. I've seen a number of silent movies there with this guy playing the organ. It's, it's been very <laughs> a lot of fun. Really? You really do enjoy like a silent movie with an organ player. It was very, and it's not something I do all the time. It's right. not like something I sit home, watch TV, and say, "Boy, I wish this movie had no sound." And there was an organ player <laughs> in the living room. But as, yeah. as an event, it's it, 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 well, I feel like I probably go about two or three times a year. Okay, and it, that's my that's my fill of it. But I enjoy it. Um. I don't. There was another anniversary yesterday, by the way. And you want me to tell you? Yeah, I mean it's been a it week of anniversaries. Well, it was the thirtieth anniversary of my first day at the Washington Times. Oh, that did not get as much publicity as the Super Bowl twenty-six anniversary or the Knickerbocker Theater um, uh, anniversary, uh, which is a centennial in- anniversary, but 1991, January 27th, 1991, Tom became a, no, 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 1992. Oh, four, oh, you're you're saying, uh, uh, oh, 1992. Of course. That's what I meant. I, I'm thinking 91 yeah. season. Um, thinking right. football, uh, 92. So January 27th, 1992, Tommy joined the Washington times. 
Yes, and my first day on the job, I was in Indianapolis covering the opening of the Mike Tyson rape trial. Oh, right. Yeah. It was, it was quite a week. I, I wrote about it on Facebook uh, yesterday, and uh, I talked about the whole week. I mean, they really, they got a lot out of me the first week. I flew to Indianapolis, uh, covered the Tyson tr- opening trial, flew back on Tuesday. On Wednesday, I flew to Orlando because there was this new football league starting called the Professional Spring Football League, and they were going to have a team in Washington called the Washington Marauders. Guy Morris, who used to play center for the Eagles, was the coach. I don't remember this. And Barry Wilburn was going to play for this team. So I went down to Florida on Wednesday and did a big story about the Washington Marauders, a story about the Professional Spring Football League, and a profile about former Washington uh, Redskins Barry Wilburn, who was going to play for them. Hmm. The league never, never, never took off because it was all conned by some New Jersey con man. But uh, he conned a lot of a lot of credible people in the process, and then I, I flew back and uh, wrote three stories about the professional spring football league. Wow! So, but that first day when you, that you flew to Indianapolis for that rape trial, what was her name? Her last name was Washington. I forget her first name. That De- that De- Desiree. Desiree Washington, exactly. Desiree Desiree Washington, and to be fair, uh, Mike Tyson got some. You know, pretty bad advice on that trial uh, because while the while this, the uh, the Indiana hired a private attorney to be the prosecutor, a real gunslinger named Greg Garrison. Yeah, I remember uh, him. Don King had Don King had hired Vincent Fuller as Tyson's attorney. He was from uh, Williams and Conley, but his specialty was tax law. His his specialty. Was not defending wow. criminals in a rape trial. I didn't know that. And it, 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 and his main defense was, his one of his defenses was, Mike Tyson is is such a is is the worst scumbag in the world, but he's not this bag of a scumbag. That was the defense. <laughs> he's not, that was pretty much one of the defenses, and so Mike got six years in prison, wound up serving three. You know, when you think back to that time, I remember watching that trial, I guess on court TV or, you know, I think court TV had started then. Obviously, that became super popular. Actually, you know what? So the the Simpson murders and trial would come, you know, obviously a few years after that. But there was a trial, and I don't remember if this was before or after the Mike Tyson trial, but I remember watching this trial also, I think on Court TV. I, I, I think Court TV was around then because I, I, I remember watching the Tyson trial, and that was the trial of the rape of the uh, Kennedy. Um, um, it, uh, God, it was one of the – it was a Kennedy um, – I got to look that up now. Do you know what I'm talking about? The rape trial of uh, it, 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 yeah, up, up William, Kennedy like William Kennedy Smith. William Kennedy Smith was yeah. right around, I think, the same time, and that trial was televised as well. And then, obviously, the Simpson trial came, you know, uh, a few years later. But you know, that was those were the days of like I I think it was Court TV. Uh, maybe it was CNN. Maybe it was. 
HSN, you know, headline news or whatever. But I remember watching some of those trials, and it was fascinating to watch those trials because you've ne- you had never been able to see them before. I think that's you know oh, that, that not trial, on TV. Yeah, that trial did take that did take place in 1991. You're right. Which one, Kennedy that, Smith? Uh, uh, the, the Kennedy Smith trial. Yeah, yeah, I knew it was right around the same and time. He, 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 yeah. Um. Okay. Oh, you know, um, when you mentioned that, you know, it was your, uh, the, the, about your first day on the job and going to Indianapolis, it just reminded me, do you know that Scott's first day at ESPN after leaving, he, he was at the golf channel, got the job at ESPN. The first day he got on the job, they sent him, uh, to Florida to, to uh, Daytona because Dale Earnhardt, that was the day that Dale Earnhardt died. Oh, yeah. And that was that was the first yeah. story. And by the way, I'll never forget talking to him. He's like, they're sending me down there to cover this Dale Earnhardt thing. He goes, I don't know anything about NASCAR. And he didn't. He had <laughs> zero interest. And I was just like, well, it's the story's not really about NASCAR. It's about this legend dying. Um, you'll be fine. You know, and and it was uh it was during like a um you know, a warm-up lap, you know, right? It wasn't during the race itself. Well, I, or maybe I remember it was. watching it in a bar. Was it during I the was race spring or not? Training. I forget. God. It was during a race. I was watching it during spring training in a bar, and it didn't seem like the kind of crash that anyone would have died right. in. Right, right. And, and I think that, that was what was so unnerving about it. It really, like, it really, like, un- Changed the storyline changed dramatically. It did not seem like the kind of crash, as I remember it, where, that that would have taken a life, or yeah. that would have been that dramatic. I, I will I will tell you this: for someone who was not a NASCAR person, nor have I ever really been a NASCAR person, although I do enjoy watching the Daytona 500. I think the, I think some of that stuff is exciting to watch sometimes, but I will never forget. Tommy, just as a sports fan, the reaction to his death, because that, you know, um, NASCAR's always had, at least, you know, based on what I think I know about the, um, uh, the fans of various sports, I think NASCAR fans were particularly loyal, like more loyal than any other sport. It was one of the reasons that it was really uh, super profitable because advertisers knew how loyal Daytona, um, or not Daytona, NASCAR fans were of certain drivers and therefore were more apt to totally buy the products that they were endorsing. Like I think the popularity and the stickiness or the loyalty or whatever you want to call it in marketing or advertising was highest with NASCAR fans there for a long period of time. And I don't think I realized that until Dale Earnhardt uh, died, and the reaction was unbelievable. Still to this day, you'll see, you know, number threes, you know, everywhere when you're watching an event, you know, when you're watching a NASCAR event. He he really was revered, obviously. Yeah. I'm stating, you know, the obvious here for many of you. A little... A little uh, NASCAR trivia for you, so I can act like I know what I'm talking about here. Uh, Bill France, the guy who built Daytona, who basically built NASCAR, uh, he patterned the Daytona track after an old wooden track speedway in Laurel, Maryland. 
Laure- that he raced on for a while. Really? Yes. Yeah. Where, where in Laurel? I don't know where. Somewhere in Laurel. Is there some track there in Laurel? It wasn't. It wasn't the Not horse anymore. It wasn't the horse track. No, no, a racetrack. No, I know. There I, used to I, be a racetrack. I mean, in Dorsey, Maryland, not far from Laurel, when I first moved to Columbia, that I used to go watch uh, uh, racing in sometimes. But, uh, yeah, so that, I mean, the Great Daytona Speedway, which is one of the iconic sports venues uh, in the United States, uh, the idea for that came from a small wooden track in Laurel. Hmm. And that's pretty much my NASCAR. Uh, (laughs) The only reason I know that is because in the mid-'90s, there was a guy trying it, to build a track in, in suburban Washington in Anne County, a big track, and NASCAR and the Franz family just crushed them because they own half the tracks that, that are built. And they didn't want a track built so near Dover uh, and uh, Richmond and every place else. So they basically crushed the effort uh, before it really got started. There, but this guy wanted to build a big track in Anne Arundel County and have NASCAR races. You know, I've never been to a NASCAR race. I have been invited several times um, by a friend of mine who is very much into it and, by the way, does it the right way whenever he goes to Daytona or wherever. And But I've been told by several people that if you go to one of these races, it's phenomenal to be at. Like, it's a really incredible experience to be at these tracks, to watch these cars traveling at that rate of speed, and that it's a real rush. So I, I've always thought about doing it. I've been invited, and I've just never done it. But I, I think I should add that to the list of things that I'd like to do, is go to a NASCAR well, race. I've, ne- I've never I, been to the Indy 500 well, we either. Should, we should go together. Uh I've never been to a NASCAR race. The closest I ever got was when I was in a fraternity down here. We drove up to Daytona once for the Daytona 500. Never went inside the track, just partying in the in the parking lot the whole time. And I remember stealing a Pepsi banner from that had to be the size of a billboard <laughs> from the side of a like the side of a truck, yeah. and bringing it back to the fraternity with us. Uh, so that's the closest I ever got to a NASCAR race was the parking lot at Daytona. But I used to like to go see small-time stock car racing from time to time. Um, all right. We sort of have a plan today, but we've gotten a little bit sidetracked per, per usual. Uh, Washington uh, signed David Mayo, the linebacker, to a contract extension. John Kime just tweeted out. Um, I do have some Washington football team talk. There was a Washington football team story yesterday uh, dealing with the House Oversight Committee, which we will get to. Um, But when we come back, we'll talk about the two championship games, and I will have my smell test as part of the next segment as well. Uh, We'll do that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Doesn't cost you a thing, really helps us. Also, rate us and review us, please, if you haven't done it. On Apple and Spotify specifically. On Apple, um, if you can write a quick one to two sentence review, those things are really taken uh, into consideration by potential advertisers of the show. So it would really help us out. Tommy's with me today. My smell test is coming up. Uh, It's Championship Sunday. Um, I'm looking forward to both of these games. The first game is the AFC game between the Chiefs and the Bengals. You know, I was thinking about, you know, how quickly the NFL season goes by and, you know, how we're already here on what in some ways is kind of an anticlimactic day. Um, You get the two games. You don't have the four all weekend long. This is the first, you know, this will be the first weekend in in a while. We haven't had football on both Saturday and Sunday. But I mean, really, you go through you go through Saturday withdrawal in a way. Yeah, because uh, it only lasts for what, a month? Yeah, I really I, I, exactly. I'm well. I mean, you have Saturday football. F- Look, this is the first Saturday since August. You know that we haven't had football. You I know, mean, NFL. Football. I know, I know. But for me, you know, it's football in general because I love college football just right. as much. Um, but we get the two games on Sunday, and you know, no one really had Cincinnati, KC. Um, and nobody really had San Francisco, L.A. I think at the beginning of the year, people certainly thought the Rams were a contender. Obviously, people thought the Chiefs were a contender. But, hell, in the AFC North, you know, it was Baltimore and Cleveland. That was really the discussion before the season started. Um, Pittsburgh and Cincinnati were really relegated to behind Cleveland and Baltimore. Like, if somebody said there's going to be a team from Ohio in the Final Four back in August, every single person in America would have said, it's Cleveland. 
because there were high expectations for the Browns heading into this year, and they were in the divisional round last year and lost at Arrowhead to the Chiefs. Um, so Cincinnati's a surprise, and you know, in many ways, Kansas City, given where their season was headed early in the season, a little bit of a surprise, but they got onto a major role and obviously played as good a game offensively, um, Mahomes, uh, et cetera, in the playoff game against Buffalo last week. San Francisco was dead to right in the final week of the season against the Rams. They were down 17-0 in a game they had to win just to get into the into the postseason. Um, and they came back, and they came back, by the way, on the strength of an incredible running game, but down 24-17 to with a minute 20 to go and no timeouts. Jimmy G drove them 88 yards for a game-tying touchdown that forced overtime, and they ended up winning the game in overtime, or they wouldn't be here. You know, that game also features this streak. The 49ers have won six in a row against the Rams, uh, including sweeping the Matt Stafford Rams this year. So San Francisco and Cincinnati are pretty big surprises. Cincinnati the biggest from where we were at the beginning of the year. Um, But as I said before the playoffs started, and I'll say again going into Sunday, no result will surprise me Sunday. Like no Super Bowl matchup is going to be a surprise to me. I think think all four teams have a chance to win two games – Sunday and then a Super Bowl game. I do. And you know, how would you rank them? Uh in terms of best team to worst team? Yeah. I think the Chiefs right now are the best team because they're just so explosive offensively and I think their quarterback may have played the best game of his career last week. And that's saying a lot cuz he's had some great games. So I would say the Chiefs are one. I actually think number two is hard because I am a big fan of Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, and I am not surprised that they won last week. I am surprised if you had told me that they're going to be they're going that Burrow's going to get sacked nine times that they would have won the game. But I think there's an, a, a swagger about the two of them in particular in that team that says I give them a chance. The Rams I didn't like going into last week because I didn't think they were playing that well, but they did on Sunday. I guess I would say the Rams are the second-best team, and then the Bengals and then the Niners, and I guess the only reason I'd have the Niners last is because of Garoppolo. The other three teams have outstanding quarterbacks. You know, elite quarterbacks in the case of Mahomes and maybe Burrow. And Stafford not that far off. So that that would be my ranking. You know, what I would, would be yours? I would, well, mine would be, the first two would be the same. I would put the Chiefs and the Rams. Uh, I would put the 49ers ahead of the Bengals. Uh, I understand the rationale behind, you know, since it, it's a quarterback season, riding the best quarterback in that but I think there's something to be said for playoff experience. And the Bengals are, this is all, the Bengals are already celebrating what they've done. The 49ers aren't, I'm sure. You know, that's, to me, that makes sense that you would think that. But there was something about the Bengals watching them this year, and I said it before their first playoff game against the Raiders, and I said it last week before Tennessee that I don't think this is a group that's going to be happy just to be there. 
I didn't think that they would be overwhelmed by the moment last week. And when I say they, I'm really talking about the quarterback and I'm talking about Jamar Chase. Like the, what they've done together this year is special. And there's a chemistry there that goes obviously back to LSU. And I just don't see them being, you know, content at this point. Um, I really don't. Um, and so I, I – but but at the same time, obviously the 49ers were there, you know, a couple of years ago and came up short after yeah. blowing a ten point lead. And there is a toughness to the 49ers, you know, a physical uh, way they play at the at, you know at the line of scrimmage and with their run game um, that you know is pretty damn impressive. And I'll throw and I'll throw this out too because I've already said it once or, or twice this week. I'm not a big fan of Garoppolo. I thought he could have been picked. Five times last week, and three of them could have been pick sixes. But, man, has he come through in the clutch when they've needed him late in games this year. He did it last week. He did it uh, the week before. Um, and he did it, the, you know, well, he didn't do it the week before necessarily because he threw the pick that got Dallas back into it. But he did it against the Rams in the regular season to get him into the postseason. He did it against Tennessee. He did it uh, against the Bengals. Um, in an overtime game. I mean, the 49ers have an unbelievably impressive resume of wins down the stretch. They beat the Rams uh, in the game that they had to have. Uh, They should have beaten the Titans on the road, didn't. They beat the Bengals in overtime in Cincinnati when Cincinnati needed it desperately. They beat the Vikings in a shootout, you know, in Santa Clara. Um, they, they handled the Rams twice, including that game where they blew them out, you know, in November. Um, and then obviously the win at Dallas and the win at Green Bay on Saturday night. I mean, they have been through the gauntlet here, especially over the last three weeks. Um, and, and they, you know, they've beaten two of the other, uh, two of the three teams that are also playing this weekend over the last month and a half, the Bengals and the Rams. Um, there are a couple of things that uh, about the game that I wanted to mention because uh, I think they're interesting, and I think they also go to, you know, if you're thinking about betting this game and not in the contrarian way in which I bet it. But a couple of things. First of all, the Chiefs and Bengals played just a month ago on January 2nd. So, you know, actually four weeks ago this Sunday. And it was a game that both teams needed. The game was in Cincinnati. Um, and it was a great football game. Uh, the, the Chiefs jumped out to a 28-17 halftime lead. The Bengals came back. They ended up winning the game 34-31. It was the oddest way in which it ended. I remember talking about it on the podcast. It was an incredible ending that with, the, with um, uh, the score tied. They went on this long drive, 11 plays. Uh, I'm sorry, 15 plays, 74 yards, six minutes. They had a first and goal at the Kansas City one with two minutes to go in a tie game. And they got stopped. They got stopped on second down. They got stopped on third down. And then on fourth and goal in a tie game with 58 seconds left, they went for it because Zach Taylor said, I don't want to give Patrick Mahomes 50 seconds in a three-point game. I mean, as we found out last week, 13 seconds was too much time to leave him at the end of that uh, Buffalo-Kansas City game. So on fourth and goal from the one, they went for it, and they got stopped, but there was a penalty on Kansas City. So then they had another fourth and goal. 
um, because the the uh, or I'm sorry, there were offsetting penalties on an incomplete, which gave him another fourth and goal. They went for it again, and this time there was a defensive illegal use of hands on a play in which they got stopped. So they got the first and goal. Kansas City had no timeouts left. They took uh, three knees. And they kicked a a walk-off game-winning field goal to win 34-31. But in that game, many of you know this, for those that don't, Joe Burrow was 30 of 39 for 446 yards, four touchdowns. And Jamar Chase had 11 catches for 266 yards and three touchdowns. His average yards per reception 24.2. They dominated Kansas City. Burrow and Chase did. But that was in Cincinnati. Let me ask you this. Yeah. As as an aside, uh, when did those numbers become ridiculous and almost meaningless? In other words, like 10 years from now, will those numbers seem like ridiculous compared to the numbers that are being put up now? Would you have said the same or is thing? This the, is this the ceiling? Would you would you have said the same thing about Dan about Dan Fouts and the '80s Chargers who were putting up these kinds of numbers? Would you have said the same thing about Dan Marino and you know Mark Duper and Mark Clayton, the Marx Brothers? Because we've seen this before, Tommy. It's not it's not new. Now, if they start taking it to averaging, you know, averaging 400 yards per game passing. Well, that would be different, but Fouts and Marino and and some okay, of the quarterbacks. I'll grant you. You're right. You know, like I. You're right. There, there's a game, and I'm I'm going to find this game right now on Pro Football Reference because there was a game in the '80s. It was a Monday night game between the Chargers and the Bengals. It was Ken Anderson and the Bengals against the uh, against the Chargers of that era. And I'm going to find this right now because. Um, and probably what I should do is just uh, pull up Dan Fouts's career because Fouts was the um, was the quarterback that night. No, you, with uh, you know, you're you're right. Uh, you're you're right. Uh, it's, I mean, these are still the exceptions. These this is this is not what we see every week in the NFL. I want to find you're this. Right. I want to find this though. I want to find this this box score because it's. I want to see if I rem- if I'm remembering it correctly because it was just amazing. Um, this was a Monday night game. It was a, I mean, look, remember the Redskins played that Monday night game against uh, against the um, uh, against the, the Packers, forty eight forty seven, which yeah. included, I think, over a thousand yards of of, uh, of offense too, and probably like seven hundred yards of passing. Yeah. But please let me just find this real quickly because this box score was always one that just blew people away was it 83 84 84 well i remember the 71 game between uh namath and unitas the jets and the colts where uh like namath threw for almost 500 yards and unitas threw for almost 400 yards right i mean that that was a a remarkable game so yeah that's and that's 71 here it is i found it all right um, it was 1982, which, by the way, was the strike-shortened season that year. It was a Monday night game in San Diego featuring those high-flying Don Coriel Chargers and Forrest Gregg 
and the Cincinnati Bengals. By the way, Tommy, the reason they were scheduled for a head-to-head Monday night game was because the year before these two teams met in the soup in the AFC Championship game in the Freezer Bowl, the 59 below windchill at Riverfront Stadium, which by the way was the week after the Chargers beat the Dolphins in what I think was the greatest Monday night game, uh, the greatest playoff yeah. game, excuse me, of all time. The Chargers won this game 50 to 34. Ken Anderson, 40 of 56 for 416 yards and two touchdowns. Dan Fouts, 25 of 40 for 435 yards and a touchdown. Um, The two teams combined for 1,102 yards of offense (laughs) and 46 first downs. So, yeah, this, this stuff was going on. You know, uh, back yeah. then, um, and 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 like you remember, obviously, what the Jets were doing with Namath in terms of throwing the ball downfield. And I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Raiders with Daryl Lamonica and bombs away probably had some massive outputs, you know, in the '70s uh, as well. But the '80s, oh, that was what Al, Al Davis, Al Davis, that was his whole philosophy yep. to uh, throw, throw the ball long, yeah. But the 80s and really the late 70s into the early 80s is when they relaxed um, the rules that opened up the passing game and they got rid of your ability to uh, contact receivers after five yards. You know, and, right. and that's when um, that's when everything it became a, a, a passing league much more than it had been. I'm not saying that in the 70s there weren't really great passers, but the numbers really started to take off with Coriel's Chargers and in the 80s. And um, I think that game, I'd have to look this up, that game for its time, I think, and for a long period of time, held the record for the most combined yards in an NFL game. Um, I'm going to see what that record is now Um, because I'm just curious. Most combined yards in a game in NFL history. Okay, this is individual yards. Okay, here it is. Um, is this is this true? It was the Super Bowl between New England and Philadelphia. The forty-one thirty-three Super Bowl game between the Eagles and the Patriots, the one that the Eagles won with um, Nick Foles. Uh, the two teams combined to break the Super Bowl record for the most total yards in a game, but the combined 1,151 combined yards is actually the most ever in any game in NFL history. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm reading the same thing. Wow, I didn't know that. Well, I mean, the game that I just pulled up was 1,101 yards. So that's – it was – I wonder if – I don't have the list of this because um, I just – What are they going to think years from now about Nick 1,102 Foles? yards. And Nick Foles is part of that record. I know. Nick Foles is part of that 1,151. Well, did you know, What are they going to say about Nick Foles years from now? Well, remember, Nick Foles, even before that Super Bowl, I believe had tied the record for the most touchdown passes in a game. 
didn't he throw seven touchdowns in a game? And I think Peyton Manning, you know, had the record before. Here it is. Nick Foles ties NFL single game record with seven touchdown passes in a win over the Raiders. And did he t- did he tie Peyton Manning? Because I think Peyton Manning had seven touchdowns in that when he was with Denver in um, – I don't know if it was his first game, but I think it was a, uh, one of the first games of his career. Yeah, here it is. Uh, Broncos superstar Peyton Manning threw seven touchdowns in week one over the Ravens. And I think that was his first year in Denver. And the Ravens were the defending champs, but didn't open at home, Tommy, because the Orioles wouldn't change their right. uh, their home game. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yes, I do. But, I mean, you're going to have to sit down and, and tell young <laughs> NFL fans years from now, Yeah, you know, when they, add, when they look at their numbers and they say, who's this Nick Foles guy? Whatever happened to him? But don't you think you could do that? You can find a lot of records that are held by obscure players. The problem with that, uh, not with the super, not with the Super no, Bowl. No, no, you're right. The, right, the, the, the Super Bowl would make that certainly different. Yeah, but like I'm, I'm yeah. looking through some single game um, uh, records. Um, do you know who holds the single game record for the most completions in a game? Jared Goff. And Drew Bledsoe are tied for that with 45 <laughs> completions in a game. I actually would have thought that the record for the most passes completed in a game would be more than 45. Um, pass... Yeah, I'm surprised. John, John, didn't John Beck have that against Buffalo? <laughs> no, no, no. I think he had perhaps <laughs> the most completions with the shortest yards per reception. <laughs> or, or the shortest – I think he probably – his average length of pass was like negative two yards because he threw it behind. Um, Drew Bledsoe also holds the NFL record for the most pass attempts in a game, which is 70. See, I would have thought that would have been – God, recently, didn't we have um, – uh, recently, yeah, it was the game It was the game a few weeks ago that – Justin Herbert's 64 pass attempts in a game is 11th most all time. He had that in that uh, game against the Raiders on Sunday night. Here's one for you, Tommy. So Bledsoe's got the most pass attempts of all time. Testaverde is second. He had 69 in a game. Goff is 30 at 68. John Kitna and George Blanda are tied for fourth. Blanda did it as an AFL player. He threw 68 passes in a game in 1964 in the AFL. Help everybody understand the big difference in the 60s between what the AFL was as a league in the NFL. The well, AFL was I mean, bombs away, they, right? Yes, it was. Like, And, you know, part of the reality was the AFL – uh, recruited more black players right. than the NFL did. Right. To be honest with you, and and particularly from black historically black colleges and universities. The Chiefs, uh, yeah, the Chiefs were notorious for that. So uh, yeah, the the AFL was was a, was like the ABA, a wide open a wide open scoring league with a lot of badasses on defense still though. Yeah. Um... Anyway, well, we could do this. we could do this for hours. Let me get back to just a couple of points about the AFC. 
title game. Uh, Joe Burrow got sacked nine times last week by a dominant defensive pass rush in Tennessee, led by one of my favorite players all year long um, and even coming out of the draft and now you know becoming a superstar in Jeffrey Simmons. Joe Burrow is the sixth player to en- enter a conference championship game in NFL history with 50-plus sacks. His 62 sacks on the year are the most. So he has taken a pounding, and he took a pounding last week, and that's why it was my favorite performance of the weekend because he kept getting hit, and even when he wasn't sacked, he was getting hit, and yet he made every big throw. The key to this game is protecting Joe Burrow on the road in front of what will be a much louder crowd and hostile crowd at Arrowhead. I'm not knocking the Titans home crowd because you know I've heard it's great in, in Nashville, but Arrowhead's notorious for the noise. And so they better be able to run the football. They better be able to get the ball out of Burroughs' hands quickly. This is the whole key to the game because I think Cincinnati's totally capable if they protect him of shredding Kansas City, if they can protect him. It's a big if. Here's the other thing from this game I wanted to mention. Um, Bill Vinovich's crew is doing the game. Um, He was – Vinovich has always been, for any better, you know this, he's always been one of those referees whose crews let them play. They just don't throw – a lot of flags. His crew averaged 10.9 flags per game, 34% less than the crew that called the most, which is the Carl Sheffers crew, who, by the way, is working the San Francisco-LA NFC Championship game. The Bengals were the least penalized team in the league, and Vinovich and his crew was the only referee in the league, the refereeing crew in the league, not to call one roughing the passer penalty at all during the regular season. And wow. they called very few holding penalties as well. So they're coming after Burrow on Sunday, the Chiefs are. They're coming after him. They know that the offensive line is the weakness for Cincinnati. They're not going to worry. Um, uh, uh, they're, they're not going to worry about roughing the passer penalties. But if I'm Cincinnati, I'm not worrying about holding either. I'm going to do my best to protect my quarterback, and I'm going to throw caution to the wind on the holding penalties because this is a crew that doesn't call them a lot. But to me, that's the game because if they can't move the ball, and if they can't keep the ball away from Mahomes, and if they can't score, you know, 30 in this game, they're not going to win the game. But I think they can. I think they actually have a chance to. I mean, I also think because of the lower flag count, you potentially get a faster-moving game, which would, would lead me to an underplay, but you'll get that here momentarily. Um, okay. And then in the NFC game... You know, to me, it's like it comes down to Garoppolo. I mean, I, I Matt Stafford has now proven in back-to-back games he's been up to the occasion, and I did not think he was playing very well at the end of the regular season. He wasn't. You know, he had that three-week stretch of seven interceptions, but he was really good last week. I mean, he really proved 
that the price was totally worth it to go get him because I don't think the Rams are in this spot with Jared Goff at quarterback. I would almost guarantee it. I don't think so either. But no. but but no. Garoppolo <laughs> can, cannot make the passes he made last week and expect to get away with it against Jalen well, Ramsey and company. No way. To be fair to Garoppolo last week, he had a couple of ridiculous drops. Well, he I had, mean, he had of, I mean, the like, Kittle drop early. Yeah, that was it. That was pretty much yeah. it. No, there was there was a, there was no there was another one that was that was an embarrassing drop. It really was pathetic early on. I don't think I think a guy like Von Miller is going to have a huge impact on this game. I think Miller. I think a guy yeah. like Von Miller is, is going to have a big impact, and I think they're going to make life a little bit too miserable for Garoppolo. Uh, to be able to uh, to be able to function uh, like he needs to. Yeah, um, uh, Garoppolo Garoppolo's going to put some balls up for grabs. It's what he does. You know, he paid for it in Dallas and nearly cost his team the game. And last week, you know, in frigid conditions on a field that was just getting worse, Green Bay just could not. You know could not make him pay dearly for some of the balls he threw last week. Uh, And that, to me, with him in the game, because they are a physical team, they're going to try to run the ball, um, and they're going to try to get after Stafford. But I think Sean will do a really good job of getting the ball out of Stafford's hands. I think OBJ's big for them. You know, he really has played exceptionally well here over the last couple of weeks. Um and it's you know it's I, I found I found this on on um, on the referee thing just to add to that uh, that wasn't what I was anticipating talking about uh, as much but I found this nugget that Carl Cheffers as I mentioned led the league with you know sixteen and a half flags thrown per game and you've got in the two teams playing um, in this game um, uh, two teams that were among the least penalized in the league so it'll be interesting to see how. That shakes out. Also, the Rams are six and two against the number in their last eight. San Francisco's nine and two against the number in their last eleven. And the 49ers have been a great playoff bet under Kyle Shanahan. Four and one uh, in their last five playoff games um, in the uh, under Kyle Shanahan. Uh, the, obviously, they went to the Super Bowl the last time we're in the they were in the postseason, and they're a game away from it now. But Garoppolo and then protecting Burrow um, are, are, to me, the two things. If they can't protect Burrow, I think it's going to be a long day, even though they got through it against Tennessee. But let's be honest. They got through it against Tennessee because Ryan Tannehill threw three interceptions. You know, Ryan Tannehill single-handedly wrecked Tennessee's chances to win that game. Burrow came through big, but he got sacked nine times and they scored 19 points. Uh, you're not going to get sacked a bunch of times, score 19, and beat the Chiefs. Big difference between Mahomes no, and Tannehill. That's not going to happen. Yes. <laughs> All right. Can we get to my smell? I would agree. T- can we get to my smell test, and then you can pick Absolutely. the games? Absolutely. I think it's what everyone's waiting for. All right. Let's get to my smell test. Kevin looks where the John Q. Public is putting their cash and does the opposite. It's, it's time, time for the, the smell, smell test. test. Uh, a rough weekend last weekend for your boy Tommy. 0 and 3. I'm 5 games below 500 and seemingly heading for um what would be just my fourth losing season in 15 years of the smell test. But it's not over yet. I've got, you know, two games 
with, you know, spreads and totals and halftimes, um, first half uh, bets, which I had in the Super Bowl last year, and then we've got a Super Bowl game. But last week was really unfortunate because I had the under in the Tampa Bay Rams game, the under in the Kansas City Buffalo game, and both of those games were under and one play away from finishing under. Um, but Cam Akers fumbled, Tampa got the ball, they, they scored once more, putting that game over, and Buffalo scored a touchdown down 26-21 on a 4th and 13, um, which then created the chaos and the fun and the unbelievable final two minutes of that game, which sent it way over the total. I mean, it was sitting there 26-21, that's 47 points. The total last week was 54. So this game was under, um, and it ended up 42-36 at 78, 24 points over. Uh, I also gave out Tampa uh, minus the three, and that didn't get it done. So 0-3. The leans last week all came through, the two unders in the Saturday game in Kansas City, but those don't count. Uh, By the way, in the playoffs so far, favorites are 6-4, and Um, And the unders are six and four. Six unders, four overs, six favorites, four underdogs in the 10 playoff games played so far. So um, this weekend, there are are some public uh, sides here. Um, I'll tell you, the public likes the over in both games. The public loves overs to begin with. So I'm going to give out both unders. I'm going to give out the Kansas City-Cincinnati under 54-and-a-half. If I could have found a 55, I would have given out the 55. I'll probably just buy the half point to get it to 55. But uh, Kansas Kansas City-Cincinnati under 54-and-a-half. The public is pounding the over in this game. They just played a month ago when it was 34-31. It was 28-17 at halftime, so it was almost over in the first half of their last game. Public loves the over in this game. I'll take the under 54 and a half. And then uh, the public loves the over in the San Francisco Rams game, 27-24, just a few weeks ago. Uh, And the total is 40. Five and a half, 46. I found some 46s out there. I'll take under 46. And then using the Tim Murray neighbor Nick theory. Did I tell you about the Tim Murray neighbor Nick theory, Tommy? No. Go ahead. It was uh, before the national championship game a few weeks ago, Alabama, Georgia. Uh, Timmy said that his neighbor Nick said to him, Do I have this right? that Nick Saban and Alabama are getting points against Georgia. And Murray said, yep, neighbor Nick, they are, uh, they are actually an underdog. And neighbor Nick said, my God, when are you ever going to get Nick Saban getting points? Give me Bama. Which, of course, to Tim meant, I'll take Georgia laying the points. And, of course, Georgia laying <laughs> the points was the right side, as it turns out. And I, I'm pretty sure that neighbor Nick – Neighbor Nick is saying to old Tim Murray, is it true that San Francisco's beaten the Rams six straight games and they beat the Cowboys two weeks ago on the road and beat Aaron Rodgers and the Packers last week and they're a a three-and-a-half-point underdog? Yep, neighbor Nick, that's what's going on in this one. Well, neighbor Nick loves himself the underdog this week with the 49ers. So give me the Rams minus... The three, I'll buy the half point. You got to give that to me because you'll be able to get it at three as well. 
take the Rams minus the three to uh, to make neighbor Nick wrong again. So the two unders under 54 and a half, under 46 in the NFC title game, and I'll take the Rams minus three. Now, I personally am not going to be surprised by any result. Um, I think the 49ers can beat the Rams, uh, and I think the Bengals can beat the Chiefs. But my predictions are Kansas City 30, Cincinnati 23, and the Rams 24, San Francisco 17, and we get a Kansas City Rams Super Bowl and we saw that regular season game a few years back on a Monday night, one of the greatest regular season games of all time, 54-51. to 51. Give me your predictions on both games. Uh, I like the Rams over the 49ers, 34-20. to 20. And I like the Chiefs over the, uh, over the Bengals, 35-30. to 30. Okay, there we go. We both have KC Rams. We just got there in slightly different ways, under ways for me. Um, All right, when we come back, we're going to discuss this House Oversight Committee roundtable with some of the victims of the sexual harassment scandal with the Washington football team. We'll do that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, There was some NFL news uh, this morning um, that I wanted to share with everybody real quickly. If you didn't see this, Jerry Jones doing an interview with 105.3 The Fan in Dallas uh, said that Mike McCarthy's job was never in question in terms of him returning as the head coach. And he said that Dan Quinn turned down a head coaching opportunity to stay in Dallas where he signed a contract extension to remain uh, the team's defensive coordinator. So, Jerry, very proud of the fact that Dan Quinn turned down a head coaching job opportunity. Uh, To be honest with you, I don't know which job he turned down. He interviewed with Denver, I know that. Uh, Denver hired Nathaniel Hackett. Uh, He interviewed with Chicago. Uh, Chicago hired Matt Eberflus. He interviewed, I know, with Minnesota, the Giants, I think the Dolphins as well, and maybe even Jacksonville. Um, but uh, but Jones, very proud of Dan Quinn uh, passing on a head coaching opportunity to stay in Dallas as their, as their defensive coordinator. Do you believe, uh, Tommy, that Sean Payton, after sitting out a year, will be the Cowboys head coach a year from now? Uh, unless Washington can get him. Well, unless 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 Danny Boy can can go get him, yeah, I don't think that's happening. Um, Sean Payton, by the way, uh, was doing an interview with Dan Patrick the other day, uh, and he was asked about the Cowboys' strategy at the end of the Forty ers game, uh, and uh, he, and he said, 
look, they're trying to get in touchdown range, and they ran a draw play. He said, we would typically throw a pass and then down it. Two more steps for Dak. He's got to slide quicker. He's got to get up. He's got to hand the ball to the umpire um, and, and, and go, and you can't hand the ball to the center. So he's a little bit critical of the Cowboys' final uh, play there. All right. Um, so this story came out yesterday. Former Washington football team employees will share their allegations of sexual harassment and verbal abuse with members of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform on February 3rd in what is being called a roundtable round table discussion Um, And that uh, was announced yesterday by the committee. The former employees are names that we've certainly been reading about and hearing from over the last, you know, year and a half. Emily Applegate, who was the team's former marketing coordinator and ticket sales rep. Melanie Coburn, who was a former cheerleader and former director of marketing. Rachel Engelson, who was a former intern who rose to director of marketing and client relations. Uh, And then Anna Nunez, who was a former uh, coordinator of business development client services. And Brad Baker, the former video production manager. Brad Baker was the one that was involved in that video that ended up becoming a big part of the Post story. The video of the cheerleaders that was apparently, you know, put together uh, for the purposes, uh, allegedly, of Dan Snyder. Uh, seeing uh, that video of the cheerleaders. Anyway, make a long story short. Um, I don't. I, I, this is going to be live streamed on YouTube. I would ask you about two things first, and that is number one, the date February third, which is the day after two two twenty two, doesn't seem coincidental. And then two, what is the end game here? I think. It's to, it's to push to create more momentum for a full-blown hearing. I think it, it's to convince the other committee members that there is a need to actually have a full-blown hearing with witnesses on this. So I think that's what the purpose of this is. Do you the purpose th- of this is, is, is to have these people, rather than read these things in print, verbalize them, uh, via uh, however, however they're doing it, uh, and to other members or member staffers so they can gain enough momentum. Because their goal, again, is to get Dan Snyder and, and, and Roger Goodell in front of them in, in, in a hearing on Capitol Hill. Do you think they'll be successful in doing that? I think there's a 50-50 shot. I mean, there's all kinds of things that go into a, a, you know, a, a congressional committee and a hearing, some of which are beyond uh, the obvious ones. Uh, but uh, I, I think they'll put on, I think they'll, they'll have a good presentation on February 3rd, and I think that'll go a long way. Uh, I tell you what, Washington signs to Sean Watson, there will be a hearing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, there will trade trades for Deshaun Watson. There will be a hearing. So uh, I think it's a fifty-fifty shot. There'll be a full-blown hearing, and I think the purpose of this is to juice that up. Because there's some members that want it, but just because a member wants to have a hearing doesn't mean it gets done. You right. have to convince you know the whole group, and, and 
the chairman, the chairperson has to schedule it. And, you know, uh, look, uh, for people who say, you know, Congress has no business uh, in, in doing this, you know, I mean, they, they've done this before with steroids. Uh, you know, police departments don't just investigate murders. They investigate other crimes as well. And I might want to point out the NFL is what? A $20 billion industry that's unregulated. I mean, there's not many businesses in this country that, that generate $20 billion in revenue that are unregulated. The NFL is. So um, it doesn't hurt to have a congressional hearing once in a while. Some members of the committee told ESPN they're pursuing the investigation as a case study to inform potential legislative solutions that can protect employees who encounter sexual harassment and discrimination within the workplace. It's like, hey, we want to use this example of this horrendous uh, football culture um, as a case study uh, so that uh, these things can be used to create legislative solutions that protect workers in the future. You know, it, it sort of goes hand in hand with what I've said many times before, which is, I think there should be a case study done by several business schools. Like if I were Wharton I would, and I were teaching some sort of sports marketing or sports business class, I would use the Washington uh, football team's ownership situation of the last 22 years and create a case study on what not to do as an owner of a sports team. Yes. Um, because it really, yes. it really is almost impossible to have achieved what Dan Snyder's achieved in two decades with a brand that was so fiercely um, followed and, and uh, had such a loyal, um, uh, passionate following. But, I, you know, I, all of these things, you know, and it's always something, right, with this organization. And over the last year and a half, obviously, it's been a lot more. But they always lead to this question among among our group, you know, the people that are listening to this podcast for the most part, the people that have listened to us on radio or read you, you know, this Washington football or D.C. sports uh, community. You know, it always leads to this question. And by the way, you know, not intended to be disrespectful to those that were victims of this workplace atmosphere and culture that they had to endure working for this shithole of an organization with an owner that may or may not have been directly involved in the harassment himself, but as the owner of the organization had the ultimate responsibility for the people he employed um, in terms of the way they behaved, what was acceptable and unacceptable. He, he is the, the, he's the person that's supposed to set the rules for what the culture is going to be. So I want to make sure that when I say the question always is, which I'm about to get to, is not a way to be disrespectful. There is major empathy and disgust over the way these women were treated. But for most of us in this group and this bubble that we're in, it always ends up being, well, will any of this lead to Dan Snyder not being the owner of the team? Because the number one desire, the overwhelming percentage of Washington football fans that are left, the number one desire is and has been is for Dan Snyder to get the hell out. You know, whatever it takes, get him the hell out of, out of here. It is a 22-and-a-half-year run of, an, uh, of incompetence, of embarrassment, 
that is essentially chased away half of the fan base. And what's left of it is far less enthusiastic than it used to be, like me. You know, again, somebody really should do this as a case study. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call one of these business schools and find somebody teaching a sports marketing class and say, this would be a phenomenal case study. Like, because they always teach about, you know, um, you know, uh, fiercely followed brands and how you continue to grow that customer base. Because and, and never do they think about how they can chase half of it away in two decades or less. Um, but it's always the question we come back to. You know, it's like, will any of this lead to Snyder's ouster? I don't think so, is my answer. The league paid for this so-called independent investigation led by Beth Wilkinson, you know, and at the end of it, we didn't get a copy of the invest. We didn't get to see the investigation or read it. We didn't even get an executive summary. To be fair, and I've said this many times in the past, Tommy, we did get a pretty stern and harshly worded press statement from the league. You know, in that press statement, when they find Washington $10 million, they talked about toxic workplace and, you know, in a workplace that was particularly uh, bad for women um, and highly unprofessional for women and a workplace that included things like bullying and intimidation um, in addition to the sexual harassment. So th- that was a pretty harsh statement, you know, when they announced the $10 million fine of the org. Well, you know, everybody thought it was a $10 million fine of Snyder. Well, you found out firsthand from one of his lawyers, he was not fined. The organization was fined and he was not suspended. You know, um, but we never got the investigation. We never got an executive summary of it. And in many ways, like the story started to die down a little bit until the emails with Bruce Allen and John and and John Gruden came out in the fall. And so that got Congress. The email story isn't going to go away uh, because Gruden is, you know, is taking the NFL to court. Right. About that. And if that, if that, if that, now that case may get dismissed because. Yeah, and the NFL may argue this is something that needs to be discussed in arbitration and not in a court of law. But if that if that winds up going forward in a court of law, the Washington football team is going to be dragged through all of that. And well, Bruce Allen's going to be dragged through all of that. Well, without without these emails, we wouldn't have this House Committee on Oversight and Reform holding this roundtable. Yeah. We wouldn't have no, had we them. Wouldn't. No, we, we wouldn't have that. No, absolutely. And we wouldn't have had them asking no, that the would, league. That would not have happened. And remember, they asked the league and gave the league like a deadline on documents, and the league basically blew them off for the most part. Yes. So. Yes. You know, I I wanted to. There was one other thing I wanted to mention on this because in the statement, and I and I, I I've sort of um, zeroed in on this part of all of these allegations because I think I feel intuitively that this is a big part of what was going on. In the statement, they said that these employees are going to share their allegations of sexual harassment and verbal abuse. When you go back to the statement from the league, they talked a lot about the bullying and intimidation. This is what I think has been undersold as a a big part of the culture of the organization, because of course the sexual harassment claims are, you know, 
are, are, are worse, you know, in many ways. And, and by the way, more headline worthy. And I'm not saying that in a dismissive way at all. But I think this organization had so much uh, that was wrong with it. But the bullying and the intimidation and the verbal abuse would really probably, in my opinion, I don't know this for a fact, speak more to what the owner's behavior was than maybe the sexual harassment does. Yeah, but the sexual harassment, the one is, is, you know, I mean, pushes pushes the needle, the legal needle, if, if nothing else. Right. I mean, bullying, I mean, you know, I mean, we've all been, you know, I mean, had bullies in places we worked uh, over, over the years. Uh, what I think is going to happen is uh, I think that if the, if the committee, and I say it's a 50-50 chance, because there's some committee members that want to do this. I don't know how many committee members want to do this. If, the, if Roger Dell and Dan Snyder are forced to testify in a public hearing, I think that puts Dan Snyder's ownership in jeopardy. Anything short of that does not. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Um, I don't see it. I think that, um, you know, the league had this statement, but the bottom line is the league also uh, gave them the, uh, the debt waiver. And then, as you reported before anybody else did, loaned them the money to buy out his minority shareholders. They've made him more powerful in his own organization um, since all of these allegations came out. And nothing from the Beth Wilkinson report led to anything resembling, as far as we know, um, something that would have been close to uh, Snyder being ousted. In fact, you know, my belief all along has been that Snyder is, you know, a terrible owner, as we all know. I mean, that's not even that's not debated by anybody and probably not debated by anybody within league circles, any of the other owners or anybody in the league office. But he has not done anything um, that would rise to the level of them sticking their necks out to try to take his team away. There, for the grace of God, go they. Not to mention the litigious nature of him to begin with they'd be in courts for years unless it was a slam dunk thing and i i hope i'm wrong and i hope they have something and i hope something comes out somewhere down the road out of these emails or something else um but i i would bet that if he ever isn't if he's not the owner that ultimately it's because he decided i've had enough i'm going to sell the team for five and a half billion dollars that that would be the more likely scenario, uh, but uh, again, I, I you know we'll, we'll see what happens after this roundtable form, which is it's just I think it's just basically to juice things up. Okay. You know, I, I mean, it sounds from the, the statements of to ESPN that the comments ESPN that there's so, that uh, there's some committee members that don't have a taste uh, to 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 have a public hearing on this. Uh, and maybe they need to be convinced. All right, you wanted you had a story to tell, so tell it real quickly about something you did yesterday. Well, yesterday uh, I spent the day in Selma, Alabama. It's about three hours from here, and one of the things I did was I walked across the Edmund Pettus oh, Bridge. The bridge, yeah. 
Yeah, the famous bridge that was that they walked across in, in the Selma to Mon- Montgomery, the Selma to Montgomery March of '65. '65, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, I also visited the National uh, Voting Rights Museum and Institute, which was really informative, inspirational, and uh, it was just it was just a it was a great way to, to spend a day, uh, particularly. Uh, when, you know, uh, some of the stuff I read these days about, uh, what's going on in some school systems, it was good to basically to have a, a day of learning about that. You know what I realized? The more I know about what happened to, to, uh, to black people in this country, the more I want to know. I want to learn more. I want to know more. Yeah. First of all, just out of curiosity, how far of a drive was it for you to Selma, Alabama, from where you were in Florida? Three hours. So was this this was the, your planned trip? Yes. So the um, tell me because I'm winging it here, but 1965 was the the Selma to Montgomery march, right? And when did LBJ and Congress pass all of those voting rights legislative acts? And it was what was that the same year? Or did that come a year later or two years later? Because LBJ still, correct me if I'm wrong, has more legislation passed during his presidency than any president in the history of our country, right? Uh- he did it. This, yes, I, as far as I know. And and the Voting Rights uh, Act was obviously a big part of of all of the legislation that he passed. But what was that? Was that event? Was that march significant to the Voting Rights Act being passed? And when did that come, or did it come before? I forget. Or did you not know from uh, whatever you? Well, it, I think I think it was passed in uh, in August of sixty five. Which was about six months after the march, I think. Okay. So, Martin Luther King led that march, right? Am I wrong about that, or am I right about that? Well, what's interesting, he started it, and then when they when the troops stopped them initially, they went back, and there was a lot of anger that they didn't confront the troops, but King didn't want to break the federal. Uh, you know the, the federal court order, because I, I think he probably had a sense that that would be overturned, uh, and they'd be able to continue their march, which it was like within a couple of days. So, um, that stuff is so cool to go to those places and and to learn yeah. about that stuff. I'm 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 totally with you on that. Um, okay, what else you got? I got nothing else. Looking forward to. One of the last dwindling days of, of NFL football. Yeah, and you'll be able to enjoy it in beautiful uh, weather. Um, so so do that. Uh, enjoy it. Uh, we're done for the day. I'll be back Monday, obviously, to recap all of the football from Sunday. Thanks, Tom. Okay, boss.